Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Joining me today is our cardiac coordinator, Brad Ward. Hello. And today we're going to take a dive into supraventricular tachycardia and a couple treatment aspects of SVT that may have some improvements on what you were taught, quote unquote, back in the day. So first off, how many of y'all have had tons of success using classic vagal maneuvers to break SVT, Brad? Hardly ever. So bear down, cough. Nope. I mean, every now and then you get one, right? But not, not very often. Second, how many out there love pushing adenosin? Really two syringes, maybe a stopcock, something always gets dropped. No, and the patients hate it too. And the patients hate it. So you got to time it up. You've got to get, you know, at the very least you're using two syringes. In the ED, oftentimes we have the, the stopcock set up and inevitably some somehow the stopcock gets turned the wrong direction and everything turns into a, a cluster in my experience. And it always ends up being a two-person job for a denison. And again, the patient hates it. So the question for you listeners to ask yourselves today is, have we been doing both of these things wrong all along? And it looks like from looking at literature and research like we do here at MCHD, there's a better way for both. So before we get into modified vagal techniques and how we administer adenosine to patients with SVT, we need to start out with what is SVT. And SVT really is a wastebasket term for several atrial tachycardias. It includes a flutter, atrial fibrillation, sinus tachycardia, AV. RT and AVNRT. Now that starts to get into the arrhythmia terminology that gives me the heebie-jeebies, but when we're talking SVT, the kind we treat with the denison, the kind that's classically in younger, healthier patients, it's the regular rhythm version of AVNRT that we're talking about. Differentiating various AVNRTs and AVRTs is another topic for another podcast, probably with someone who's a little more electrophysiologically uh, inclined than myself. But again, go back to foundational treatments of any arrhythmia and pharmacologic rhythm and rate management is only in stable patients, right? The flow, flow sheet gets pretty simple when the patient's unstable and that arrow points to one box. And what does that box say? That's electricity. Exactly. So you talked about SVT versus AVNRT versus everything else. What about just straight sinus tack versus SVT? One of the more common questions that we that we get asked when we're when we even bring up SVT, and if you look, you'll find tons of charts and diagrams out there on the internet that give you quote unquote rules for determining the difference between sinus tack and SVT. And realistically, it can be really difficult. But there are some big sort of groups and big uh, themes that you can use to help differentiate. And the first one is sinus tack is variable. In other words, patient has a heart rate of 165 and they're a firefighter just came out of a house fire and you get an EKG and you're like, Ooh, that's, that's fast. Is that SVT? Is that sinus tack? You should probably not give that a denison. You look over at the monitor in three minutes after the second patient comes out and you see the heart rate of 145. And in just a few seconds, you've dropped from 165 to 145. That's the variability that I'm talking about. And you are correct. That patient does not need a denison. They need some rest a fan, some Gatorade, some Gatorade, potentially a, a bag of fluid max. 
Um, so it's, it's variable and it's situational, right? So it fits the fact that not unexpected that your heart rate would be 165 if you just fought fire for 45 minutes in extreme heat with turnout gear on. That's not, that's not shocking. So situational and variability very, very, very much points towards sinus tack. Whereas SVT, patients doing their computer programming work at their desk, felt totally fine when they got up in the morning. It's 9.47 a.m. and all of a sudden acute onset palpitations and lightheadedness. Again, not situational. Heart rate is 160 and you look over five minutes later and what's the heart rate? 160. 160. Hopefully you fixed it between uh, that five minutes. But again, not variable and not situational. So that points more toward uh, SVT. What about the P waves? P waves are always a tough one. So look for P waves before the QRS or even buried in the T waves. Uh, if you see them before the QRS, that suggests sinus, sinus tack. If you see them buried in the T waves, it's going to look more like an R wave. And that is what's termed a pseudo R wave. And that's going to point you more towards AV and RT or SVT again. Rate ranges, not accurate at all. We, you know, if you get on the treadmill and you run as hard as you can run for two minutes, is your heart rate going to be 150 or less? No. Nope. So that whole 150 less than sinus tack greater than uh, SVT really doesn't hold, water. doesn't hold true. Um, you know, you get a 20 year old with nausea and vomiting for a week. Glucose is high. Pulse is 142 SVT or sinus no. tack. That denison doesn't usually fix high glucose levels. Doesn't usually fix DK, huh? Not really. So that again, the patient had preceding illness, nausea, vomiting, glucose of 595, more than likely sinus tack. So think about primary versus secondary arrhythmias really is a way I want to wrap this portion up. Primary arrhythmias, there's no underlying illness that preceded. There's no dehydration. There's no fever. There's no uh, toxicologic cause. There's no ingestion. There's no exposure. Uh, it's, patient was well, felt palpitations, now with tachycardia versus fever and cough for a week, you know, pneumonia and sepsis. That's, that's sinus tack. That's versus SVT. cocaine, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, PCP, uh, you know, Benadryl overdose, for example, will be another one that can cause some, some really uh, fast tachycardias that are going to be sinus tack and not SVT. So just before we even get into the treatment part, Make sure that you're thinking about, is this a cardiac arrhythmia or is this secondary to some underlying medical cause? So you mentioned treatment. What do we do to start out with? So we've always started with vagal maneuvers. That's what I'm sure you were taught from day one. Yep. That's what I was taught. Basically, bear down, hold your breath. Bear down, blow in a syringe, hold your yep. breath, cold ice water in the face. And none of that ever really seemed to work for me. Um, and that's not surprising. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the revert trial today, which was published in Lancet in 2015. Really very simple and eloquent study that looked at classic vagal maneuvers versus a modified uh, vagal technique. And their success rate with classic vagal maneuvers was 17% in the study. So less than one in five worked, which really kind of fits with my experience. I'm uh, 
I'm guessing yours too. Yep, just about. So what did they do? They did the blow in a syringe uh, for the vagal portion, just like you mentioned. They had the patient blow in a 10, 15 cc syringe for 15 seconds. But when that 15 seconds was up, they took the patient from a sitting position, rapidly made them supine, and then did a passive leg raise. Pretty pretty simple, right? Not uh, not not terribly complicated. That's something we can achieve. Not expensive. Not time consuming. Not terribly hard for most patients. Not terribly hard to do, you know, in the ambulance. So something that we can do both in the ED and in the pre-hospital setting. And what did they find? They found that with the modified version they converted 43% of their patients. So from 17% with classic vagal maneuvers to 43% using just the move to supine, passive leg raise. And I've, I've used this several times myself, and it's not 100% by any means, but it's more than twice as effective if you, if you believe the numbers exactly in this trial. So we uh, include this in our protocol here at MCHD, and we encourage uh, anyone out there, if you want to, there's plenty of, Actually, the study authors of the Revert trial have a uh, video on YouTube that's, again, worth a thousand words and shows exactly how to do this. It's almost free and about anybody can do it. And doesn't take much time. We're, we're uh, definitely fans here. So what about moving on to a denizen? Everyone's uh, least favorite medicine I, to receive, I would say. No, no patients love this, but it does act quickly and there's really minimal long-term side effects with adenosine. So we, we use it in these patients. How does it act? It acts via uh, adenosine one receptors located in the AV node and basically converts to normal sinus rhythm. Why does it have minimal side effects? Because the half-life is so short, 10 second half-life. Really the only contraindication you'll read out there is, is bronchospasm. Be careful in bronchospasm patients. Again, I've used it in asthmatics and COPD patients. Uh, just be prepared if the patient were to begin wheezing to treat that secondarily. Classically, two syringe or stopcock technique needs, needs to be used um, or was taught that that needs to be used. Why is that? Well, adenosine is broken down by endothelial cells themselves. So as soon as they hit the vasculature, that breakdown begins. So you want to rapidly get that medicine to the AV node as quickly as possible. So whether you used classically a stopcock or two syringes, the idea was to jam the drug in, flush as quickly as possible so that you get as much as you can uh, to, the, to the AV node. There's actually pretty good evidence uh, from some pediatric studies that the stopcock method delivers smaller than expected doses uh, than, than, than what, we, what we hope. Um, and again, why is that? It's because it's broken down so quickly. Uh, so it's stable in saline. This is a, one of those things that I just wish I'd have thought of. Uh, you know, it seems very much common sense. Whoever decided, hey, wait a minute, there's a better way here. It, it just really seems simple and straightforward. I remember in residency treating uh, asthmatics with you know, 10, 15 milligrams of albuterol. And in the process, they all had potassiums of 2.7, 2.8, 2.9. And that was, you know, 2005. So that was 15 years ago. And realistically, back then, it wasn't terribly common to use albuterol for hyperkalemia. But we saw hypokalemia in the asthmatics over and over and over again. And then over the last 15 years, now it's cool to give 
albuterol and helpful, not just cool, but helpful to give albuterol to uh, hyperkalemic patients. Again, we're talking sans COVID here. That's one day we'll be able to give NEBS again. One day. But looking back, it seemed fairly obvious that why didn't we give albuterol for hyper-K from the beginning? Well, the single syringe technique for adenosine goes right in that bucket for me of, man, I wish I'd have thought of that. Seems really straightforward. It's very simple. Since adenosine is stable in saline, we want to get it to the AV node as quickly as possible. We know it's going to be broken down by the endothelial cells as soon as it starts, you know, passing through our vasculature. Instead of doing two syringe or some crazy stopcock method, put the adenosine in 20 mils of saline and push it as fast as you can. No fumbling, no delay. And the final question to that is, does it work? And study by McDowell found cessation rates of SVT of 73% versus 41%. So using traditional uh, stopcock technique, 41% uh, success. Using single syringe technique, 73% success. So from 40% to almost three quarters. Uh, And that was using six milligram doses. Um, When they looked at up to three doses, they had 100% success with single syringe, only increasing to 70%. Uh, success using traditional. Um, Choi, another study, looked at traditional versus single syringe, and they found an 86% success rate using uh, single syringe and 80% uh, traditional. So basically equivalence. Now, both of these studies used variable doses. Uh, They were small studies. So is it superior to use single syringe? There might be a, a stretch at this point to say that, but it at least looks like at the very very worst, it's gonna be equivalent. Uh, we've elected to use uh, 12 milligrams as our initial dose here at MCHD. Brad, run through our protocol for the listeners real quick. Yeah, the protocol we have is to skip the dose of six milligrams in adults altogether because we found more success even using the two syringe method with starting with a dose of 12 milligrams of adenosine, then opting to do it a second time. And after that, we start to explore consulting with a district chief for more options for electricity and sedation, perhaps, or redirection back to maybe this is sepsis, maybe this is another cause. But our our protocol is start with 12, repeat once, and then reevaluate where you are. And before, before that, we definitely encourage, like we talked before the modified vagal first again cheap easy quick easily easy to perform in the in the back of the truck again we start with 12 milligrams so that's four milliliters so add that to 16 cc's of saline in the single syringe with the rapid push repeat times one if no success ideally in these patients we want to be as close to the heart as we can get so proximal ac iv access is ideal and just Beware that you may see some bronchospasm in asthma COPD patients. I've never personally seen that. Have have you? I've not. And I was actually going to ask about clarifying that. Are you talking about people in an acute exacerbation of asthma or COPD or people with just an underlying history of it's, asthma and COPD? Realistically, it's what you see on a lot of the, you know, the uh, kind of the drug handout, um, you know, indications, contraindications list. So, admittedly, if someone's actively wheezing, I would be more concerned that they have a secondary arrhythmia. It's under that, an airway algorithm, first yeah, of all. Yeah, th- th- maybe that's a, 
multifocal atrial tachycardia and not SVT. Maybe it's an AFib RVR. Maybe it's a sinus tach from hypoxia. So we work to fix the breathing problem first and hopefully the tachycardia resolves itself. Absolutely. If the patient tells me they've been having breathing trouble for three days, fever, wheezing. Starting to look at pneumonia, starting to look at... Asthma exacerbations, COPD exacerbations. An acute infection. Yeah, all the above. So maybe they need, uh, again, we're going to speak as if COVID-19 doesn't exist and say, I would give them NEBS and steroids, positive pressure, uh, non-invasive ventilation, those sort of things. So when it comes down to it, the the warning against or warning, the caution with COPD and asthma is the same as every other drug where it says give with caution, whatever that means. Yep. I would just, I would just be aware that it's on the list and, you know, be aware that if it occurs that we need to take, um, proper, you know, treatment pathways at that point. I, I would say though, just to say it a second time, if the patient is actively wheezing, I will be concerned that you've got a secondary non-cardiac cause for that arrhythmia and look towards treating the lungs first. So there we are. That's uh, short and sweet for today. Thanks, Brad, for joining us. Let's roll through some take-home points. Again, think about primary cardiac arrhythmias versus secondary dysrhythmias. And realistically, it's going to be the preceding symptoms and the patient's history that gives us many of those clues. Every heart rate of 145, 165, 160 is not primarily cardiac. Think about sepsis, intoxication, exposure, dehydration, hemorrhage, all causes for uh, tachycardias that are not primarily cardiac. Cardiacs are usually abrupt, usually non-variable. Look for those pseudo R waves that can occur when the P wave is buried in the QRS complex. Do the modified Valsalva, put it in your practice pattern. It's super simple. It's just like we always did. Bear down, blow on that syringe. We've got syringes in our bags and pockets and drawers everywhere we work. 10, 15 seconds, drop them from sitting to supine, passive leg raise. You're going to get about double the success rate as compared to using classic simple vagal Valsalva techniques. Single syringe adenosine just makes sense. Wish I'd have thought of it. Less work, quicker drug administration, more drug administration, really just common sense makes sense. Proximal IVs are going to be ideal. The quicker you can get it to the AV node, the less breakdown you're going to have by the endothelial cells. And as always, we want to close out. If you're dealing with a tachyarrhythmia and the patient is unstable, they're altered, they're hypotensive, they don't look well. We don't want to do any of the things we've discussed in this podcast. We want to provide them with the proper dose of electricity. So as always, if you have questions or concerns, you can shoot us an email at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a like, leave us a review wherever you listen. Helps us get out there a little more visible. And as always, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.